book of Ruth this weekend, and it's one of my favorite books, and it's a book that really, I mean, that song kind of talks about it, right? That we do go through hard things, devastating things, broken dreams, things we thought we would never have to go through, and yet Christ can sustain us through it all. And not only can he sustain us through it all, he can actually glorify himself even in greater ways than had we not gone through those troubles at all. You know, I think about Disney movies uh, as it relates to this. I kind of have a love-hate relationship with Disney movies, and it's not so much that the message is always follow your heart. That's problematic enough. But in Disney movies, right, something bad always happens, right? Your favorite Disney movies, you think of Lion King, what happens? Mufasa dies. Uh, Bambi, Bambi's mother, dies, right? Inside Out, Bing Bong, he doesn't make it through the end. And I gotta stop talking about Bing Bong or else I'll start crying. <laughs> but, you know, I don't like having to experience, even vicariously, you know, these pains and these losses, even through characters in movies. You know, or you think about a song like, Blessed Be Your Name. Right, I think we'd all prefer, you know, the sun shining down on me, the world all as it should be, rather than a road marked with suffering and pain in the offering. But God often has us go through difficulty and trials. You know, we live in a fallen world, so we experience all of the trials and difficulties that come along with that. We have idols in our own heart that sometimes God has to sort of wrench out of us. And there's a lot of pain associated with that many times. And then there's also that God will purposely put us in trials and into difficulties so that people see him through us. And so in this life, we will experience trials. We'll experience difficulties. We'll experience broken dreams. But in the midst of all those things, God will use each one if we're his, he will use each one. He won't waste anything. He'll use it to glorify his son. Right? I lay it all on Jesus. So at the end of the day, who gets all the glory for that trial? Jesus. Right? He's seen as more beautiful. He's seen as more powerful, more satisfying than had you never gone through that trial before. And I think that's the hope that we have in the book of Ruth is that Jesus is really the point of the book of Ruth, as we'll see as we go through it. And this wasn't just a trial for trial's sake, a broken dream just to see what would happen. This was a broken dream that God used to bring about his son into the world. And so turn to Ruth chapter 1. I'll pray, and then we'll look through this. And the title of this first message is Hope in Christ, the Restorer of Broken Dreams. Father, we're thankful that we could be here. We're thankful that you give us your word. We thank you that you don't make just promises that life will be fine, and we won't experience trials, and everything will go just right. But you prepare us for even the difficulties of life. You don't hide that from us. You even give us stories in the scripture of people that have suffered much. We think of Job, we think of Joseph. And in this story, of course, we think of Naomi and Ruth, who their lives were not easy. Their lives weren't always happy. And yet you're working in all of it. And in fact, more than just sort of working in it in their personal lives, you're ultimately doing things for your purposes on a global scale. 
You're bringing forth your plans and your purposes even through our trials. Christ will be more glorified through our trials than had we never gone through them at all. So remind us of those truths. We need those truths. We need to put our hope in Christ when life is difficult. So help us to do that as we read through this. In Christ's name, amen. So read chapter 1, verse 1. We want to remember this. Remember that God often accomplishes his purposes through broken dreams. You know, life is often a mixture of heartache and hope. Just look at the first two verses of Ruth chapter 1. It says in verse 1, Now it came about in those days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. So right away, we sort of have this very ominous backdrop for when this story is taking place, right? We have an ominous time frame, right? When is this happening? In the days when judges govern. Has anyone read the book of Judges, right? How, how are those days described in Scripture? You know, are those great days, you know, these judges are amazing, you know, they're leading the people really well, everything's going fine. It's like, no, you read the book of Judges, and there's some of the most horrendous things happen in the book of Judges. You know, these, these are things that are almost unspeakable at the end of Judges, right? What's the common <laughs> refrain by the time you get to the end of Judges? There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's when this story is happening. So you have an ominous time, you have an ominous situation, right? What's happening at verse 1? There's a famine in the land. <laughs> So not only are you in this difficult time when everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, you also have no food. So how do you think it's going to go when everyone just does what's right in their own eyes and now there's no food? Again, you think it's going to be a loving environment, people are going to be quick to share. It's like, no, people are out for themselves. And then what's worse is they find themselves in the story in the land of Moab. So they're outside of Israel. They're outside of the promised land. They're outside of this land that God is going to give his people. So everything about this is ominous, right? Hard time, hard circumstances, hard place. You know, sometimes life is going to take place really on a backdrop of difficult circumstances. You know, of course, we live in a world where, yeah, things are not great. You know, you think about the situation we find ourselves in, the things that schools are teaching, the time in which we live. It's an ominous situation. And yet, there's also a ray of hope. If you look again at verse 1, it says, A certain man of Bethlehem in Judah was, went to sojourn in the land of Moab. So he's described as a man from Bethlehem. And then in verse 2, it says the name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his sons were Malon and Kilian, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. If you read through these verses, it's odd that he would point out twice that this man was from Bethlehem. Right? What's significant about Bethlehem? In the Gospels, think about it. Bethlehem is what? The city of David. Right? So there's a ray of hope here, that this story ultimately is pointing forward to where did David come from? How did God get from a certain man to David the king? And ultimately, where does David the king take us? 
to the king of kings. So this is how the story of how you get from a certain man to the son of man. A story of how you get from no king in Israel to the king of kings and the lord of lords. That's what this story is all about. So I should have said spoiler alert before that, but that's really what this is all about. That Jesus is coming through this family. Now you also have a contrast here in verse 1 where it says, A certain man, his wife, and his two sons. And I think what's being pointed out here is that in the time of Judges, everybody's hope was in these very powerful people, these influential people, right? These judges. This judge is going to save us, right? You know, in our day, it's like this president is going to save us. These policies are going to save us. All of our hope gets pinned on really influential people. But this is a story about just a certain man, just anybody like you, like me. That God is actually going to accomplish these grand purposes, not through the influential, not through the people in high positions. He's actually going to accomplish his eternal purposes through really nobodies. Just average people that are going to choose to live for him instead of for themselves. But, again, this story is a sad story. Look at verses 3 to 5. You're set up in verse 2 to think that this story is about who? Elimelech, right? And he's got these two sons, and the story's all going to revolve around this family. But what happens in verse 3? Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. So this story we thought was going to be about Elimelech, a mad turns into a story about Naomi, because she's now bereft of her husband. Her husband dies. I mean, imagine the heartache of losing your husband. I mean, some of you may not have to imagine that. I don't know what the situations that you've been through. But again, what do you expect? When you get married, you expect, I'm going to be with this person the rest of my life. This person's going to bring me joy. We're going to share all of life's ups and downs together. I'll always have someone to go through life with. And what happens in verse 3? That person dies. He's not here anymore. And also, Naomi's away from home. You know, in verse 3, I bet Naomi's most comforting thought in the midst of her husband dying was, at least I still have my two sons. But turn to verse 4. Look at verse 4. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other was Ruth, and they lived there about 10 years. So again, you're thinking, okay, well now the story is going to be about her sons, right? Her sons get married, they're going to care for her, this is how it's all going to, it's all going to be fine. And then verse 5, then both Malin and Killian also died. And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. I mean, again, imagine the heart that you lost your husband, and then life finally gets back on track. You know, maybe it's been a few years, you know, you still have your sons, your sons get married, life continues, life gets back to normal, and then tragedy strikes again. Both of her sons die. Look how Naomi's described in verse 5. Right, what does it say at the end of the verse? The woman 
was bereft of her children and her husband. Right? How is she described in verse 2? She's a wife. How is she described in verse 3? She's a mother. Now who is she in verse 5? Just a woman. She's got nothing. She has nothing left. From wife to widow, from mother to no mother. And it says she was bereft of her two boys. Right? And it, he, the author intentionally uses the word boys, like kids. But they're not kids, right? I mean, they're married. They have, you know, they were on their way to having family. But from her perspective, like, I've now lost my boys, my little boys. And again, she's got nothing. Nothing left. She's lost her identity. She's lost her sense of provision, right? Her husband and then her sons. She's lost her security. She has nothing. In a foreign land, in the middle of a famine, in the middle of a time of judgment. You know, life is not always going to go the way that you plan. I mean, sometimes we're going to have broken dreams. You know, maybe you're going to lose that job that you thought was the answer to your prayers. Or the news from the doctor may not always be good. Your kids may not go the way that you had hoped. Your marriage might not end the way that you thought it would. You may lose your spouse. You may lose a child too soon. And even your silver lining, right, could be lost. You may experience that mixture that we see here of heartbreak and hope. You know, it happened to Naomi. It could happen to you. Maybe it already has. But in the midst of that, we need to remember that God often accomplishes his purposes through our broken dreams. Look back at verse 6. Again, a glimmer of hope. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people, giving them food. So after everything happens, there is a glimmer of hope. The famine is over. God is being good to his people. Naomi actually still has two daughters-in-law that are with her, and they all set to go back. And I think this is that glimmer of hope. We need to remember in the times of our trial that God is just as good when everything's going well as he is when everything's going bad. He's the same God. He's still loving. He's still kind. He's still gracious just as much when it's hard as when everything's going right. You know, part of God's goodness may be that he's allowing you to experience broken dreams so that he can accomplish something even better in your life. And so where will you go when hard times come? In verses 7 through 18, we see when hard times come, when dreams are broken, where do you turn? And you're going to turn one of two ways. You're going to either turn toward God and his people, or you're going to turn away from God and away from his people. And we see both of those things in the verses that follow. Thinking of Naomi, don't let your broken dreams turn you away from God and others. Look at verses 7 through 9. So she departed from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go. 
return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Now, on the surface of this, this request from Naomi for her daughters-in-law to go back home makes complete sense, right? I mean, they're widowed as well. And who, do they, who should they rely on if they're a widow? They should go back to their home, right? They're not from Judah, they're from Moab. So their family, their support structure, everything that would help them in the midst of a trial is in Moab. And so really all Naomi is telling them to do is do what makes sense. Do what normal people would do. Go back home, and then you'll have everything that you need, right? Your family will take care of you, all of those things. You know, but I think there's hints of bitterness even in Naomi's request to them. She says, you know, go back to the house of your mother, which is an odd thing to say, because ultimately, who should they go back to? They should go back to the house of their father, right? Their father is the one who would take care of them. So for her to say, go back to the house of your mother, is really Naomi's way of saying, I'm not your mother. Just go get away. Go back to your own family. I'm not your family. Go back. Then she says, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you did with, what would you expect her to say? My sons. I shouldn't say that. What does she say? With the dead. Right? I mean, she, that's how she thinks of it. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you dealt with the dead. But thankfully, Orpah and Ruth, they're not easily persuaded. Look at verse 10. They said to her, no, we will surely return with you to your people. Right now, we're going to stay with you. We're going to help you. We're going to be with you. Okay, Naomi's not going to take that answer. So verse 11, Naomi said, return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? For I have yet sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands. Return, my daughters, go. For I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. You know, so Naomi ratchets up her argument. She's been trying to push them away the whole time, right? She kind of took the kind of the approach of like, let me just kindly, you know, pray for you, be on your way. It didn't work. So now she turns up the heat, right? She refers to them as my daughters, right? Distancing herself from them didn't work. So now let me give you a term of endearment. You're my daughters. No, go. I'm trying to care for you in this. Why should you go with me? There's no point in you going with me. It doesn't make any sense. Have I yet sons in my womb? There's actually no word for womb there. There is a Hebrew word for womb that she could say that. She actually says, are there even sons on my insides? She's pointing out again how hopeless her situation is. I don't even have a womb. Right? I'm, I'm too old to even have children for you to hypothetically marry later on. I'm in a desperate situation. She's too old to have a husband. Even if she could get married right now and have kids right now, what are you going to do? Wait around? 
for 18 years or however long it would be before you could marry them? No, she says, it's harder for me than for you. The word there for harder is actually bitter. It's more bitter for me than it is for you. Go home. You can have a normal life. You don't have to be in this bitter, desperate state that I'm in. Go home. And then she says at the end, the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. She thinks of God as her enemy. God's my enemy. He hates me. He's punishing me for no reason. And I think when we look at Naomi, we can understand her response. I'm sure we've all been there. When life hurts, sometimes our temptation is, I'm just going to push everyone away, and I'm going to try to be by myself. But when life hurts, don't push people away. I mean, sometimes I think we use pragmatic reasons, right? No, I'll be fine. You know, you have enough to worry about. And, you know, I'll be fine. Everything will be good. You have a lot on your plate. You know, God will help me. Sometimes we give spiritual reasons, right? God will sustain me. Christ is all I need. You know, I'll be just fine. Right? Don't tell people the right answers when you're not feeling them. Ask for help. Ask people to help you. And when life doesn't go as planned, don't turn away from God. God is not your enemy. It may feel like it. I'm sure it felt like it. It did feel like it for Naomi, right? Everything's going wrong. I lose my husband. That's hard enough. Life finally gets back on track. Then I lose my sons. I have no one. I mean, God must hate me. That is her conclusion. And yet we need to remember in those times that God is the same God when life is going well than he is when life is hard. He's still loving. He's still kind. He's still sovereign. He's all of those things even when life hurts. He's just as good when you have that newborn as he is when maybe that teenager leaves home in rebellion. He's the same God. Now, thankfully, in verse 14, Ruth is not easily persuaded. Verse 14, they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah does leave, and I don't think we're meant to fault Orpah for this. I mean, she's really doing what any normal person would do in that situation. I've lost everything. I don't have anyone to care for me, so I'm going to go back home. That's just what makes sense. So we're not meant to fault Orpah like she's a bad guy, bad gal in this story, no. But what this does is it makes Ruth's sacrifice even more dramatic. That she's willing to cling to her mother-in-law, right? I mean, I'm, I was thinking about this. I was thinking my grandma, my dad's mom, she's in this assisted living place. And so she's moving from one place to another and we have to go out and help. And my dad passed away a number of years ago. And so, you know, my mom is helping out with this move, and I'm thinking, like, that is so interesting. Like, that she has to care for her mother-in-law. And it's like, in one sense, it doesn't make any sense. She has no family ties to my grandma, and yet she's doing that. Or if I thought about it, if something ever, you know, happened to me, it's like, would Rhonda care for my mom? Like, again, these things don't make sense. Like, why not go back to your own family? But Ruth doesn't. She clings to Naomi, her mother-in-law. 
And so we see in Ruth, let your broken dreams turn you toward God and others. Now, the amazing thing about Ruth is Ruth is not just someone who's there and everything's been going fine for her. She lost her husband, right? She's a widow as well. Life's been hard for her too. And so she should have the same temptation, push people away. Naomi tells you to go home. All right, I'm going to go home. I'm going to get out of here. But she doesn't. Look at verse 15. This is Naomi talking, right? Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods return after your sister-in-law. Right? So Naomi, again, doesn't want anything to do with you. Get away from me. I don't want you around. Return. Go back to your gods. My god, you don't want anything to do with. Here's what my god does. My god kills my husband and my sons. So why don't you go back to your gods, and maybe they'll be a lot better to you than my god has been to me. And that's what Naomi is saying. But look at Ruth's response. Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. And that is incredible. I mean, Ruth, in the middle of her own broken dreams, makes this incredible statement to love and support her mother-in-law in this desperate situation. I mean, she's basically telling her, like, stop telling me to abandon you. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to stick right by you. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Wherever you die, I will die, and I'll be buried right next to you. I'm not going anywhere. So stop telling me to leave. It's like, you want to pronounce a blessing on me to leave? Well, I'm going to pronounce a curse on myself if anything takes me away from supporting you. She's basically saying, I don't know what's worse than losing my husband, but may the Lord find a way to do that to me if anything but death parts me and you. I mean, this is incredible. The amount of commitment she has to her mother-in-law. You know, she says the only thing that could possibly separate us is death. And I think she's saying my death, you know, or her or Naomi's death, you know, even. Like, I'm going to commit myself to not die until you die. Right? I'm not going to be like Elimelech. I'm not going to be like your husband. I'm not going to be like your sons. I'm going to make sure that I'm with you for the rest of however long you're on this earth. And again, think about what Ruth is doing in this culture a woman's hope of provision, protection, security was what? A husband, or at the very least, a father. Ruth is saying, I'm putting those things away. I'm not going to go pursue those things. I'm going to stay with you. She gives up her future to serve a widow who has nothing to give her. Naomi is not going to be a source of provision and protection for Ruth. Ruth's going to have to figure out a way to provide for her. Now, why does she do it? Because she loves Naomi. 
We don't know why, but she does. She's committed to her. Ruth doesn't allow Naomi's bitterness to drive her away. Ruth doesn't even try to correct Naomi's bitterness, right? And she doesn't say, no, you're wrong about God. You're not really like that. She just says, no, I'm just going to be with you. And I'm going to support you. And I'm going to care for you. It's not the sensible thing to do. But it's the godly thing to do. It's incentive. It's also the God-like thing to do. You know, at some point in this story, we don't know when, Ruth came to understand who God is. That he's not the enemy that Naomi was painting him out to be. That he actually is caring and loving and sovereign and all these things, right? Your God will be my God. I'm not going to go back to my gods. Your God is the true God. I've seen him be good. I've seen him be loving. And I'm going to commit myself to be just like him for you. I'm going to love like him. I'm going to serve like him. I'm going to provide like him by his grace. Because of how he loves me, I am going to love you. And she believes that the Lord will take care of them both. Even when she can't see how that's going to happen. And so let your broken dreams turn you to God and turn you to others. And don't underestimate the eternal impact of a genuine concern for others when they're going through something difficult. God uses Ruth's commitment to Naomi to bring about Jesus Christ. I mean, it's not, you know, an exaggeration or an overstatement to say that history changed because Ruth committed herself to Naomi, to her mother-in-law, who she had no reason to love. It's not an overstatement to say that the salvation of humanity hung in the balance of Ruth's decision to care for an elderly relative. God used that to bring about Jesus Christ. And I think when we think about how can I make an eternal impact, sometimes we might think, oh, I'll be a preacher, or I'll be a missionary. You know, I'll leave everything and I'll go to some foreign country and I'll preach the gospel to people. Like, well, sure, God uses that. And that's an amazing thing to do if that's what God has called you to do. But Ruth made an eternal impact by sacrificing and caring for one person, her mother-in-law. You know, this story is not about the, again, big, influential people, the missionaries, the preachers. This story is about really just regular people loving the way that God loves and God using it to change history. Right? This story is about the mom who tells her kids about Jesus and hopes that they get saved. This story is about the student who sees their classmates not as the enemy, but as a mission field to tell them the gospel. This story is about the dad who goes to work and he sees his co-workers as those to love the way that God has loved him. And eternity can be changed if you have that mindset. If you turn toward God and toward other people, even in the midst of your broken dreams. It is not insignificant to care for someone who's hurting. It's just the opposite. It can actually have an eternal impact. 
Now, how does Naomi respond to this amazing commitment that Ruth has for her? Well, she's speechless in verse 18, but I don't think it's because she's so amazed. Verse 18, when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. She's like, fine, if I can't get rid of you, whatever. Just come along with me then. Right? She's kind of given up on just trying to persuade her. It's not like, wow, you're so amazing, Ruth, thank you. No, it's just like, whatever, fine, come. And so lastly, when your dreams are broken, don't get bitter, but hope in Christ. And we see again the bitterness of Naomi in verses 19 to 21. It says, They both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. I mean, don't let your broken dreams make you bitter. I mean, the town is excited. I think that's the idea of verse 19. Like, hey, Naomi's coming back. Like, she left a while ago, right? It was a famine. She left with her family. And here she is. She's coming back. They're excited. Is this Naomi? And how does she respond? Do not call me Naomi. The name Naomi means kindness or pleasantness. And she's like, don't call me that. Because that's not how my life has gone. My life hasn't been pleasant. It hasn't been kindness from the Lord. It's been nothing but Mara, which means bitterness. The Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. So why would you even think to call me kindness or pleasantness? Stop. That's not what God has done. She blames God for everything that she's gone through, right? She even calls God not Yahweh, but she calls him the Almighty. In other words, she chooses a different name for God, right? He is the sovereign one. He's the one who has control over all things. Therefore, if he's that one, then everything that's happened to me is because of him. So stop calling me pleasant, because the Almighty has been bitter toward me. I went out full, but the Lord brought me back empty. He emptied me on my way back here. He took my husband. He took my kids. Now I have nothing. How could you possibly call me Naomi, when God is my adversary, he's not the one doing good to me. And these are heartbreaking words, right? And I think they're heartbreaking for a couple reasons. One, because we know what that would feel like. Maybe we felt that. That you know, you feel like that God is your enemy. That he has taken things from you. And that he's been bitter towards you or unkind, unpleasant to you. And so they're heartbreaking because we've all felt that. And then it's also heartbreaking because we know at the end of the day that it's not true. That God isn't dealing bitterly with her. Yes, he is the Almighty. He is in control of all things. But he's not taking things away to be unkind or unjust or unloving. 
he actually has a good plan to do, for why he's doing all of these things. But broken dreams can do that. They can make us bitter. You know, when things fall apart, we are tempted to think that God is against us and not for us. But again, everything you believed about God when life was good is still true even when life is hard. Her theology is not wrong, right? He is in control, and he is the Almighty, but what she's forgetting is that he's still good, and he's still loving, and he's still kind. And so when hard things happen, we need to put our hope in Christ, because he is the restorer of broken dreams. Don't let bitterness blind you to God's hand in these broken dreams. Right? Naomi's situation is not quite as hopeless as she says it is. Right? She says, you, she, God brought me back empty. Who's standing right next to her when she says those things? Ruth. She's not alone. But the bitterness that she has towards God has blinded her to that. It's, again, amazing that Ruth would still be there. You know, I mean, what did, Naomi, he, Ruth has sacrificed everything for Naomi, and Naomi says, I have nothing even though she's standing right there. Look how her companion is described in verse 22. So Naomi returned, and with her, Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab. I mean, the author's not telling you these things in case you forgot who Ruth is, right? I mean, like, oh, Ruth the, oh, Ruth the Moabitess. I thought it was a different Ruth than it was earlier in the story. No, he's highlighting just how amazing it is that Naomi is not alone. She has someone next to her. And that person next to her is someone that has no reason to be next to her. She's not from Judah. She's from Moab. She's not her daughter. She's her daughter-in-law. She is the Moabitess. And you'll see how that description comes into play a lot, right? The author will keep using that description. So she's not alone. And also, why did she come back to Judah to begin with? Because of the harvest. And so God is providing. The Lord is indeed sovereign, and he's doing good to his people, but Naomi's bitterness has blinded her to all the good that he's doing. And so don't let that happen to you. So what is God doing through all of this? Well, he's using all of this to accomplish his purpose. And the incredible thing is that he's not just accomplishing a purpose in her life, he's accomplishing his eternal purposes in making sure that his Messiah can come. God's plan to bring redemption to the entire world, God's plan to save you and those you love, was accomplished through this story. David comes from this. The son of David comes from this. God is using their broken dreams for the glory of Christ, and God will use your broken dreams for the glory of Christ as well. I mean, I wouldn't be here where I am unless God broke some of my dreams. Right? One of the big things that God used to save me was my dad passed away. He was diagnosed with a brain tumor on my 17th birthday, and he passed away a week before I graduated high school. And I was like Naomi. In that moment, I wasn't saved. And I thought, well, if there is a God, I don't want anything to do with him. Because if my dad was a good dad, he was a churchgoer, he, you know, all these things, and if that's how God treats people, then I don't want anything to do with that kind of God. And yet God used that. 
That was a big part of how God drew me to himself. I'm sure many of you could say you wouldn't be here unless God broke some of your dreams. I think in some ways, knowing a little bit of the history of the church here, it's like this church wouldn't be here unless God broke some of your dreams or your expectations about what he would do. God uses broken dreams to accomplish his purposes. So even through the broken dreams, hope in Christ, he'll restore your broken dreams. And he'll actually use your broken dreams to accomplish his purposes. He won't just get you through it, he'll use it to glorify his son. And you won't be disappointed. Now, it's not to say it won't be hard. That's not to say it won't be sad. But you will not be disappointed. I'm sure if you think about it, if you get past any trial that you've ever gone through, you might look back and think, I hope I never have to go through that again. But I wouldn't give it up. I wouldn't exchange it. Because I've seen what God did, did through it. So are you willing to let God break some of your dreams for the glory of Christ? Like Ruth, are you willing to give up your dreams for what God wants to do in the world? Ruth gave up her dreams, and God used her to play a part in Christ coming into the world. Ruth is not just a great example because of her love and loyalty. Those things are amazing. But she's ultimately a great example because she gave up her dreams, right? What does she want? I want a husband. I want security. I want provision. That's what a normal person would want in her situation. A normal person, just like Orpah, go back home, and you can pursue your dream again. And Ruth says, no, I'm not going to pursue my dream. I'm going to love this person who's in a desperate situation. Because that's what God would do for me. That's what God does for me. So when your dreams are broken, will you trust him? Will you believe that he's the same as when everything was going fine as he is when everything is hard? That he's still good. He's still as good on the day you say I do as the day that your marriage falls apart. He's the same God. He's still good. When your dreams are broken, will you hope in Christ, knowing that he'll use those broken dreams to accomplish his purposes? Your trials, your difficulties, they're not hindrances to you exalting Christ. They're the means of you exalting Christ. They're what God will use to help your life exalt Christ. No trial in your life is an accident. God is the Almighty One. And he's being good to you, even in the midst of trials. He'll use them. So there is hope. Even for Naomi, God is not going to cast her aside. He's going to restore her. He's going to restore her in such a way that ultimately Christ comes through Naomi and through Ruth. So God will glorify himself, even through your trials. Let's pray. Father, these are, it's a heartbreaking chapter of scripture to read through. I'm sure we've all felt the devastation of broken dreams at some point when life didn't go the way that we thought it would. And yet it's an encouraging 
chapter of Scripture because we know where this is all going. Okay, yes, you are sovereign, you are in control, and sometimes things that are difficult and sad and devastating happen to us. But even when those things happen, you are still good. You're still loving. In fact, even giving us these difficult blessings, these hard perfecting gifts, they're ultimately, they're still good gifts from you. But we'll only see them as good as if, if we value the glory of Christ more than our dreams and our ambitions. Think of the words of Christ. If you desire to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. Lord, I pray that that would be true of us, that we wouldn't seek our life. If we seek our life, we'll lose it. But if we seek your life, if we seek Christ's life, if we want to do what he would have us do in the world, if we want to live a life like him, we'll find life. We'll find joyful, abundant life, even through all the ups and downs. So Lord, if there's anyone that's right now going through a difficulty, a trial, a broken dream, I pray that they would put their hope in you. That they would trust that you're still being good, that you're still in control, that you still know what's best for them and what ultimately bring you the most glory and us the most joy. Help us to trust in those things, whether we're in the trial or if the trial is yet to come. May we be those that put their hope in Christ and trust you even in the midst of difficulty. In Christ's name, amen.